Continuing once again this morning out of Matthew chapter 4, looking particularly at verses 12 through 17, tribes, nations, dishonor, and light, part 2. Here in Matthew chapter 4, still at the beginning of his ministry, we see Jesus departing from his childhood home of Nazareth and turning instead to the region of the Galilee. And in Matthew chapter 4, verse 12, it says, Now when he heard that John had been arrested, that being John the Baptist, he withdrew to Galilee. Now that's a simple statement here in Matthew chapter 4, but when we look at the content of the other Gospels, we find that there is a lot going on behind that statement. You see, it's not simply that John had just been arrested and taken down to county for processing, but instead he had been arrested for speaking against the moral depravity and the heinous sin of Herod Antipas. He wasn't simply in jail, but he was in danger for his life. At the same time, Jesus preaches his last sermon in Nazareth and is promptly ran out of town for preaching out of the book of Isaiah. He was ran out of town by a murderous mob that intended to kill him, but he passed from between their midst. This time period in the ministry of John and in Christ had been A mixed bag of highs and lows. From the pinnacle of the greatest ministry on earth at the time, John declaring, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The revealing of the Messiah to Israel, the very purpose for which John said he was sent. To the temptation of Christ by Satan. The imprisonment of John and his impending death in a lynch mob that intends to do the will of the fallen and end our Lord's ministry before it begins. The compounding effect of these trials is beginning to take its toll on John. And from prison, he will eventually send word to Christ asking, are you the one or should we look for another? I would have you know that in the midst of such compounding travail, God is not indifferent to his people's suffering but has the answer for the place in which they find themselves. For there is much present and future good that God has purposed to be at hand. And so this morning in Matthew chapter 4 verses 13 through 17, we begin to look at the good that God is purposing for his kingdom in the midst of hardship and trial for his people. And in Chapter 14 in verse, or 4 in verse 13, it says, Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began preaching, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus has just been ran out of the synagogue in Nazareth for preaching out of the prophet Isaiah. And here we see... In these very events, the 
ministry of Isaiah and the prophecy that he gave being fulfilled. Isaiah is one of the most quoted prophets of the Old Testament concerning the coming of the Messiah. And particularly, Isaiah chapter 9 is one of the most quoted of all of Isaiah's quotes. For what we read here in Matthew chapter 4 comes directly out of the prophecy of Isaiah in chapter 9 verses 1 through 3. We quote it every year on Christmas Eve. For there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Nephtali. But in the later time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And those who dwell in the land of deep darkness on them Light is shown. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with the joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. How many times have we read that together? How many times have you sat maybe on your couch in your living room or your den or at your kitchen table on Christmas morning with you and your children reading over these great promises that were given? And so often we have a tendency to view them, and if not even if not in a in a personal light, kind of kind of taking our struggles and and our darkness and 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 our weights and, and applying that to the text, at least seeing it in somewhat of a generalized manner. What Isaiah speaks of is the grandest concepts that will ever be told to men, and he's not done yet. I mean, if you just stop there in verse 3, well, it just keeps getting better. If you look down the page in verses 6 through 7, he says, For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. What an incredible statement. Jesus leaves Nazareth with John in prison, his life at risk, Christ fleeing from a lynch mob that would intend to kill him simply for speaking the truth out of the prophet. And here is this glorious promise out of Isaiah that even in the moment is being fulfilled. I want you to consider what Isaiah writes. I want you to notice the the, the sort of oscillating contrasts that exist between themes of light and dark, between things that are good and things that are evil, between things that belong to grace and things that belong to the wrath of justice. He speaks not just about tribes and nations, not just about the the sons of Israel and their prodigy and the nations that surround them, but he speaks to them about glory and great light and multiplying of the nation, the increase of joy and rejoicing and the gladness of dividing the spoil all because to us a child is born. And yet, 
He also speaks of deep darkness and anguish and gloom and contempt for these very same tribes on who the light is dawning. Why? Why specifically? Because, guys, i got to tell you, what's going on in Isaiah, speaking to the tribes of Zebulun and Nephtali and all the other ones that they were associated with, this area beyond the Jordan, in the north, the region of the Galilee of the nations... What is being spoken about here is not simply generalized sin. Not simply the concept of evil versus good and that men are bad. Just like when Christ speaks to you, convicting you of your sin, convicting me of my sin, or the way gloriously we saw today convicted Anna of her sin, that she would come to him for salvation. When he speaks to us about these things, he's not speaking about generalized wickedness. He's speaking about my sin. When he speaks to me, he's speaking about my sin. When he speaks to you, he's speaking about your sin. Guilt is not simply a legal concept, but instead something that is very personal to each and every single one of us. I would tell you it's a glorious thing. Because it is the basis for a grace and a salvation that is personal to every single one of us. There will be no gloom for her, her, for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Nephtali. Here are two tribes of Israel that are used as an example and they are found by God to be in contempt Why are they contemptible? Why is there gloom? Why is there great darkness? We get a hint in Isaiah chapter five, chapter nine, verse five or four, where he says, "For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian." And so here is this this kind of startling contrast between gloom and darkness and light and joy. And the reason that there is light and joy that produces rejoicing is because previously there has been gloom, darkness, and contempt. And the way that that was manifesting itself were these people, these tribes of contempt, sons of Jacob, those that should have known better had a rod and a yoke that was coming from an oppressor. They were dishonored, according to Matthew chapter 4. They were brought into contempt, according to Isaiah chapter 9. And they were oppressed because of their own doing and very specific personal sin. Now, if you were here when we went through the prophet of Amos, then you will remember the way these tribes found themselves in a position to be dishonored and contemptible before God. And it took place under the reign of King Jeroboam I. It's recorded in 1 Kings chapter 12, verses 25 through 30, where after the death of Solomon, when Solomon 
foolishly listen to the hubris of young advisors instead of the wisdom of old men, tried to put his foot down the way his father would have put it down, and he had not yet earned the political or spiritual currency to do so. And when he tried, the nation split. It split into the southern kingdom of Judah and the northern kingdom of Israel. And the northern kingdom of Israel, not being ruled by the house of David, was ruled by a man called Jeroboam I, a desperately wicked man that was willing to do anything to hold on to power, but his wickedness was only matched by his own personal insecurity. You want a dangerous guy. Get somebody that's wicked and insecure and put him in a place of power and you will have a dangerous individual. It's exactly what we get in Jeroboam. So the narrative goes like this. When Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there, and this is all this area, the same area that Zebulun and Nephtali are located in, just north of the Sea of Galilee, he went out from there and built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David. If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and return Rehoboam, return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. And so the king took counsel and he made two calves of gold and he said to the people, You have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, literally, behold your Elohim, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel and the other he put in Dan. And this thing became a sin, for the people went as far as Dan to be before one. And so here you have Jeroboam, who has taken the kingdom from the house of David, from Rehoboam, Solomon's son and David's grandson, and he goes about building up the northern kingdom and restoring all of these cities and consolidating his power. But in the back of his heart, in the depth of his mind, he knows that the nature of Israel's kingship is based on authority that is granted from Yahweh himself. And Yahweh has said that it is the house of David that will reign eternal on high in Jerusalem. Jeroboam knows the truth. Notice what he says. He says in his heart, these people will return to their Lord, to their king, and the house of David. He knows the house of David is their rightful king. But he has power, and he's going to do everything he can to secure it. And so he reaches back because iniquity usually doesn't have a very original imagination. He reaches back to what he has done before, and except for one golden calf, now it's two. And he makes this blasphemous and idolatrous statement. This, O Israel, is thy Elohim. This is your God that led you out of Egypt. It's not Yahweh that's your God. It's these things that are your God. This is your Elohim. It became a sin for the people, not just for the king. What he did from a political and pragmatic standpoint was extremely effectual. The people immediately got on board. They would even travel great distances and hard pilgrimages to go all the way to Dan to be able to be before one. It became a snare and a trap, and the Lord told Jeroboam, because you have done this, 
this kingdom will not stand. I will put upon you from outside a yoke. There will be a rod of your oppressor. For I disdain you, I dishonor you, and I bring you into contempt. There will be no more bright. There will be no more rejoicing. What there will be is wrath and destruction and gloom. And the yoke that God will send. It's interesting when you look at the book of Isaiah. Because Isaiah basically has two, well, three big topics that he talks about consistently throughout the book. And the big one is the Messiah is coming, the Messiah is coming, the Messiah is coming, the Messiah is coming. And the other two are the underpinning that makes you understand why it's so important that the Messiah is coming for Israel because of your sin and Judah because of your sin. Assyria and Babylon are coming and coming and coming. The yoke upon your neck the rod of your oppression he speaks specifically about the destruction of the northern kingdom of israel and the near destruction of the southern kingdom of judah at the hands of sennacherib the assyrian i'm not going to draw the picture for you this morning we did it in depth when we looked at amos you can look back at some of those old sermons and i'll just tell you this the people that are being described here that are the hand of god and judgment upon israel are the most ruthlessly wicked and violent people that the history of mankind has ever known. They will not be eclipsed until the son of perdition himself comes. So evil was the Assyrian horde. If you're a fan of of Tolkien, if you've seen the Lord of the Rings, the, the black armies of the orcs that cover the land swarming like ants and know nothing but fire and destruction and hate and pain. The Assyrians were the historic reality that Tolkien drew from to come up with that image. And when he was done with it, as brilliant of a writer and as God-fearing of a man as he was, his estimation was, I don't think I did a good enough job portraying how evil the Assyrians really were. It is a demonic and godless horde. In Isaiah chapter 10, the gloom, the darkness that these people are dwelling in is because of God's response to their sin. And in verse 5, the Lord says, Ah, Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my fury. Against a godless nation I send them. And against the people of my wrath I command him to take the spoil and seize plunder, to tread them down like the mire of the streets. But he does not so intend, and his heart does not think so. Oh, you see, as nasty as Sennacherib is, the king of Syria is a puppet in the hand of God. What's really going on is the Lord has empowered him to be the arm of his wrath for a moment of time. But that's not what's going on in the head and the heart of the king of Assyria. In the head and the heart of the king of Assyria, he believes that this is all of his design, all of his doing, and his success is coming by his own power. He does not so intend, and his heart does not so think. But it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off the nations not a few. For he says, Are not my 
commanders all kings? Is not Kalno like Karmashesh? Is not Hamath like Arpad? Is not Samaria like Damascus? It's my hand has reached to the kingdoms of the idol whose carved images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria. Shall I not do to Jerusalem and to her idols as I have done to Samaria and her images? Sennacherib says in his heart, the Lord says, this is my doing, this is my judgment. This is my justice because they've turned from me into the idolatry of demons and recognized Elohim that are not their Elohim and gods that are not their God. And so the Assyrians come like devouring locusts on the face of the land like a consuming fire that cannot be stopped. The reason that the land of Zebulun and Naphtali is in contempt before God is because they thought they could do better than God and turned not to atheism and not to humanism but to a God that their fathers did not know and so began the generational sin of Samaria It began with Jeroboam the first setting up these two calves saying, This, O Israel, is thy Elohim. This is thy God who led you out of Egypt and gloom and darkness fell. But when it fell, it wasn't just the result of an evil king. It became a self-perpetuating and personal sin for the people of the land themselves. This is not a situation where you have an evil king come in and go, you're going to worship these demonic gods and you're going to do so by force and I have the power to make you do it. And the people are going, oh no, we don't want to. No, he sets this stuff up and they start flocking to it. This is known as complicency. Their heart and their minds were fully on board with what the king was doing. They loved it. They loved it enough to travel. Make a family vacation out of it. We'll go up to Dan. The weather's nice this time of year. The place is green and lush and the springs flow. And besides that, the golden calf is up there and we can worship and pay our honor. It became generational and father handed it to son and mother handed it to daughter. And the Lord said, because of this, the judgment of the Assyrian horde is coming. And the Assyrians came and they destroyed every single walled city in northern Israel. Every one took the death angel of God himself to put a stop to it directly outside the gates of Jerusalem. And you would think, okay, that must be the thing that will fix it. Right at this point, these people have been told, you turned your back on your God. You've done blasphemous things. This is your doing. Yes, your king put it in front of you, but you bought in hook, line, and sinker. You were all for it. You did it. The, The Lord sent Amos. He sent Isaiah. He sent prophet after prophet after prophet telling you to repent and turn from your evil ways and turn back to the kingdom of heaven and turn back to Yahweh. And you would have nothing to do with it. And now destruction has come. And surely this will be the thing that sets you on the straight and narrow path. And yet nothing further could be from the truth. Such is the nature, such is the nature of the depravity of men. Nothing can be further from the truth. The handful of people that weren't carried off into the foreign lands of the Assyrian king, instead of weeping and mourning and repenting in sackcloth, sackcloth and ashes, instead what they did was joined with the Assyrians that were there, intermarried with them, taking their daughters for their sons and giving their 
their sons to their daughters, giving their daughters to their sons, and they took and they mingled what was the polluted remnants of the worship of the one true God, even with the gods of the Assyrians, and further corrupted the worship of Yahweh. And so the final condition that you end up with is actually a conversation that Christ had immediately before returning from Jerusalem to Nazareth. And so after the temptation, he comes back from the wilderness. He's been comforted by angels and and he goes up to Jerusalem for the Passover and he spends time there and he clears out the temple and he speaks with Nicodemus about one must be born again to receive the kingdom of God. He returns to Nazareth and he preaches a sermon that gets him run out of town where he goes to Galilee so that Isaiah chapter 9 can be fulfilled. But before he does that, when he's coming back from Jerusalem, but before he gets back to Nazareth, he tells his apostles, he says, I have to go by way of Samaria. I have to go to this place first and he's not going to speak to the crowds and he's not going to speak to the the tribes of Nephtali or or Zebulun he's going to speak to one woman he's going to speak to one Samaritan woman that is the progeny of generational sin amongst these people that has been going on for centuries and when you see Christ talk to her not only do you see the amazing grace of God's ordained purpose in election him showing up and go I've came all the way out of my way all the way up here just to talk to you but you also see the gloom and the darkness that these people find themselves in in the gospel of John and we won't read the whole thing I think you know the narrative in the gospel of John In chapter 4, Jesus, returning to Nazareth from Jerusalem, goes through Samaria, and he's sitting beside a well in the heat of the day. There's a lady there drawing water, and he says, If you knew knew who I was, you'd be asking me for water. In John chapter 4, verse 19, The woman said to him, because Jesus does to her what he will do. Like I said, this isn't, when it, comes to, when it comes to sin and it comes to grace, these aren't just some generalized legal concepts. They belong to each one of us specifically. And so when Christ does what Christ does, because he's, he's going to bring the gospel of the Messiah to this woman. To do that, there first must be the conviction of sin. And so Jesus puts his finger right on her. Puts it right on her. This isn't, you know, churchy Bible belt religion. This is a holy God speaking to one of his creatures with a word that divides even bone and marrow. And man, what she wants is to quit talking about water. And so in verse 19, the woman said, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Now, our, our, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Okay, the first thing she does, this is the result of particular generational sin. Now for over nine centuries, these people 
their children, their grandchildren, their great-grandchildren, their great-great-grandchildren, their great-great-great-grandchildren, all the way down the line to this woman have been blending the concepts of what true worship is to the point that they no longer have any marker, no baseline, no solid ground for what is even real or what is not. They don't have a clue. You want to talk about hopelessness. It is hopeless not to have any bearing. It's one thing to be found guilty in sin and know that Jesus Christ is the answer and the Messiah. It's another thing to not know whether it's Jesus or Baal. Whether it's Buddha or Asherah. Whether it is Molech or whether it is Yahweh. And she says, well look, you know, I mean, you just can't tell. Does this sound familiar? To our culture today, you just don't know. I mean, there's so many different ideas. People think so many different things. Some people say you need to worship down in Mount Zion in Jerusalem. Some people you worship here on this mountain. My fathers and my grandfathers worshiped here, and that seemed to be good enough for them. But, you know, you just really can't ever tell. So let's have some kind of ambiguity that never lands at any kind of hard truth. Because if we ever come to a place where we know what the truth is, then all of a sudden we become much more responsible to have to respond to that truth and to do something about it. So there it is. Well, Jesus is not ready to wipe his feet yet. He's not ready for that yet. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me. Oh man, absolute truth is a wonderful thing. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. He says, get over yourself. This is not how it works. You're, you're, you're telegraphing that you're not a true worshiper when, when you're vacillating back and forth between these extreme realities. The reality is, and it's here, it's here, the true worshipers will worship in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman said to Him, I know the Messiah is coming, He who is called Christ. And He basically just says, Shut up! I know He's coming. And when He comes, He will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. And in the midst of gloom an oppression, and a yoke, and a rod of the Assyrian horde, and all that has come from 900 years of intentional, self-propagating, generational sin. In that moment, a people walking in darkness see a great light. Upon those walking in gloom, the light is dawned. The yoke of the oppressor is broken. And the rod is snapped. For unto us a child is born. And it doesn't start. Now look, it's coming. The water flowing from the temple that Ezekiel saw started with a trickle. And it turned into a raging torrent that no man could cross. It's coming. The Sermon on the Mount is coming. Buddy, the light is about to dawn for millions. 
And it dawns for millions, one person at a time, over and over and over and over, until it becomes millions. It's a personal thing. Oh, her sin was handed to her by her parents and her grandparents and her great-grandparents and, and, and Jeroboam the first and all the way back to Adam and Eve. The Samaritans, northern Israel, they're not unique. This is the condition of mankind. Oh man, it was handed to her, but you better believe she participated. She was complicit. She joined herself willfully and happily to it. And Jesus will have none of it. Jesus says, the light's dawning today. I who speak to you am he. You know what the analysis of the Assyrians is? And you've got to get this because personal culpability for guilt, not just generic concepts of legalism. Personal sin is the basis and the condition in which the gospel comes that produces a personal Messiah. Don't get me wrong, I'm not saying Jesus Christ is unique to you and you've got your Jesus and I've got my Jesus. What I'm telling you is when the light dawns, it produces a relationship between you and Him that is unique to you. You want to know what the analysis of the Assyrians, I mean of the the Samaritans is? They deserve to die. They deserve to die a merciless death. Not only having seen the goodness and the promise of God upon them, did they intentionally and willfully depart from Him and replace Him with something else in the fantasy of their own heart and their own mind? But then they join themselves to that continually, generation after generation. And when judgment come that should have put them on the right path, they said, we would rather join ourselves to the oppressors and perfect our evil through them than to return to that which could save us. They deserve to die. They are despicable. They are filthy. They are everything that is the corruption of evil. Their suffering has been compounding. And unlike John's, it is at their own hands and because of their own sin. It's been 900 years since the events of Jeroboam. When Jesus is speaking to this woman, when Isaiah chapter 9 is being fulfilled, it's been 900 years since Jeroboam set up those two golden calves and said, This, O Israel, is thy Elohim that led you out of Egypt. They have been compounding their sin for almost, almost a millennium. It's been 750 years, give or take a decade, since the Assyrians came and destroyed them. And they've continued in it for centuries. They deserve to die. These people deserve nothing but wrath. And the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that upon these people that deserve nothing else, to them the light is dawned. To those that are contemptible, the glory has come. You see, the glory of Christ dawns not upon those who already have the light, but instead it dawns upon those who walk in darkness 
Which is why when Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, he said, Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Of who I am the worst, Paul said. We'd like to argue with him. Christ saves sinners. Christ doesn't save people that deserve to be saved. Amen? Listen, you know, it's amen. It's like glory, hallelujah. You know why? Because there's no one who deserves to be saved. And so if Christ was going to come and save people that deserve to be saved, then we might as well hang it up and go bowling. Because he doesn't save people that deserve to be saved. Instead, he says this in Romans chapter 5, verse 7 through 8, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Friends, grace precludes merit. Grace precludes merit. You can't talk about grace and then talk about a people who deserve a shot at Christ's salvation. Because if that's the case, it's not grace. Grace is unmerited favor. You can't talk about merit and talk about grace. These people deserve to die. So do I. So do you. Because for the Samaritans and for Brian Williams and for you, your sin is not simply a legal concept. It is your sin and it is mine. And for those dwelling in darkness, those who are contemptible, on them a great light has dawned. This is the good news. This is the good news of the Gospel of Matthew. This is the good news of Isaiah chapter 9. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebelim and the land of Nephtali. But in the later time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them light is shown. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor you have broken, as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumults, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. He left Nazareth and he went to Galilee so that that would be fulfilled. And fulfill he did. 
by the zeal of the Lord of hosts. And not just to contemptible tribes of the sons and daughters of Abraham, but to the nations, to the Gentiles to which we belong. It's coming to them too. The same zeal will accomplish it. It's the zeal that you heard testimony of that accomplished it in Anna this morning. It's the zeal of the Lord that will accomplish it in you right now. Friend, let me tell you something. You're guilty. Huh? Say, boy, that's awful cliche coming from a Baptist pulpit. You know, a lot of times cliches exist because there is truth underneath them. Friend, you're guilty. And Jesus Christ is the answer. Man, it's, it's gloom and darkness. And here's the thing, you may not even know it, but it is. He is the light. He is joy, he is rejoicing, he is the breaking of the yoke. Man, you should come to Christ right now. You know, I used to have the habit of saying this altar is open to you. The thing is, is this in an altar, man? It's steps. Man, the mercy seat sits in heaven. Christ's blood sits on it for his people. The altar in which you bow will be the altar of your own heart. The beauty of it is, it doesn't matter. You can be in the pew, you can be on the steps, you can be in your pickup truck. What you should do is come to Christ immediately and the light will dawn. Let's pray.